Joshua chapter 11, reading the whole of the chapter. The conquest of the southern kingdom having been completed, Joshua looked to the north. But before he could embark on his own invasion, he was threatened by a second coalition of Canaanite kings, this one deploying a much larger army than Israel had yet faced. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madan, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Chinnereth, and in the lowland, and in Naphtoth Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon, that is Mount Hermon, in the land of Mizpah. A brief review of the geography of Palestine. Along the Mediterranean coast is a largely flat coastal plain. That plain rises to the east. Um, into hilly country known as the Shephelah. The hill country gives way to the central mountain spine of Palestine running north and south. Jerusalem, as you know, is located in that uh, mountainous center of the country. Further to the east, and not far east of Jerusalem, uh, the land falls away into the deep Jordan Valley, the rift in the earth's surface that continues southward far into Africa. The Sea of Galilee, here called Chinnereth, which is fed from the waters coming off Mount Hermon to the north. The Jordan River, which both flows into the Sea of Galilee from the north and out of it to the south. And the Dead Sea are found north to south uh, in that great rift valley. Across the Jordan to the east is the Arabah, which rises again toward hills. The Canaanites who gathered to repel Israel, in other words, came from all parts of the country. That's the point the narrator is making. They came from everywhere to resist the, to resist the Israelites near Hatzor. Hatzor, the most important of the northern cities, lay some eight miles to the north of the Sea of Galilee. It was a very large town by the standards of that day with a population estimated at nearly 40,000 people. It was probably the largest city in Canaan in those days. It sat astride the Weimaris, the main highway leading from Egypt to Syria and then Mesopotamia. As one modern study of the archaeology of Hatsor has it, Hatsor was like a fat spider in a wide-strung web, uh, perfectly located for influence, in other words. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. That particular hyperbole, like the sand on the seashore, as you know, is common uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, Israel had neither horses nor chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Scholars locate the waters of Merom in different places, but uh, always not far from Hatzor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses 
and burn their chariots with fire. Uh, Horses were hamstrung to uh, render them useless for military purposes. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. Once again, God's promise of victory did not deter Joshua from using sound military strategy. He surprised the Canaanite force by attacking when and perhaps from a direction uh, in which they were not or which they were not expecting. It's quite uh, likely that Joshua devised his tactics in such a way as to mitigate the danger posed by the enemy's chariots. Chariots are of little value in hill country. In fact, we have records of ancient armies having to disassemble their chariots and uh, carry them on the backs of uh, donkeys and so on through the hill country. But in any case, the sovereign God ordinarily and for the rest of uh, the history of the warfare in in, uh, Palestine at the time of the conquest brings about the desired result not in some supernatural way as at Jericho or as at uh, Beth Horon, but in and through his people's own plans and efforts. So Joshua and all his uh, warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Mishrephoth Mayim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. Uh, The Canaanite army, in other words, broke apart uh, as uh, somewhat somewhat, uh, occasional alliances often will, and scattered under the force of the Israelite attack. And so parts of the Israelite army had to chase uh, the fleeing Canaanites in opposite directions. Sidon was to the west on the seacoast. The valley of Mizpah was to the northeast. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hatzor and struck its king with a sword, for Hatzor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devouring them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. Same phrase we have at the end of chapter 10. And he burned Hatzor with fire, and all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hatzor alone that Joshua burned. Hatzor was burned, but the other cities were not, understandably, as Israel intended to occupy those cities. Why destroy what you intend to make your home? Yahweh had promised Israel, if you remember, as we have it in Deuteronomy 6, um, large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Only three Canaanite cities were said to have been burned, Jericho, Ai, and Hatzor. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock, the people of Israel, took for their plunder. But every man they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Now, a further demonstration of the fact that this language is hyperbole and should not be taken literally, 
but is more the common fashion of accounts of conquest in the ancient Near East. In Judges chapter 4, verse 2, we read of another Jabin, also king of Hatzor, who again troubled the Israelites. Jabin is probably a dynastic name for all the kings of Hatzor, as Pharaoh was for the kings of Egypt, as Ben-Hadad was for the kings of Syria, and so on. In any case, the population of Hatzor was obviously not completely exterminated. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. The particular commands referred to here are the commands to decimate and expel the native population of Canaan. And we've already considered this. People nowadays imagine that such a thing should not have been done, that they are kinder and more just than God himself. But what they prove is that they haven't a clue what real holiness is, and they know almost nothing of the sinfulness of sin. God had been very patient with these people, 450 years worth of patience. But theirs was a culture that deserved to be destroyed. They got what they deserved, nothing more, nothing less. The point is that Joshua was scrupulously faithful to the law of God. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. In other words, from the, the lowest, the furthest south, Uh, part of Canaan to the furthest north. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Now there was, as we will learn in chapter 13, some fighting to do still, but it was largely uh, mopping up pockets of resistance. Canaanite military power had been broken, and Israel was now in command of the field. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Deber, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod, some Philistine cities, did some remain. Now, if you remember, the Anakim, or also called the Anakites, I-M-E-M is the plural masculine ending for Hebrew nouns. One seraph, two seraphim. One cherub, cherub, two uh, cherubim. Uh, The the Anakim were fierce warriors whose reputation had cowed and unnerved Israel 40 years before when the spies had brought back their report about the promised land. With the Lord helping Israel, however, the Anakim proved not to be so ferocious after all. Here their defeat is recorded as something of a minor afterthought. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. It had taken some time, as we read in verse 18, but the war had now 
drawn to a close. At least fighting by large armies was now over. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the brilliant way in which the authors of the Word of God have constructed its narrative, and by the way in which they so powerfully and helpfully teach us the lessons of life and faith with the history that they report in the way they have reported it. We have a splendid example of that here. Lord, teach us. Your servants are listening. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. The great battle to determine the outcome of the Israelite invasion of Canaan was about to begin. The southern coalition had been a significant force, but nothing like that gathered at the waters of Merom under the leadership of the king of Hatzor. And that point is made explicit at the outset. The coalition that came against Joshua was immense. The term much, many, can be translated great, occurs three times in uh, the Hebrew text of verse 4, and the size of the Canaanite army is further emphasized by the phrase, like the sand on the seashore. What is more, it was not just a huge force that came against Joshua, but it was well equipped. This was what we would today refer to as a modern army. They had chariots, the ancient equivalent of tanks, which Israel did not have. This is the first mention of horses in the book. And it reminds us of the command that Yahweh had given to Moses in Deuteronomy 17:16. In anticipation of the time when Israel would have a king, we read that that king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. And the point was that neither Israel nor her leaders were to rely on military might and power and armament rather than on the Lord himself. Nor did they need to, because no matter the seeming power of the military force arrayed before them, the Israelites swept it aside and the Canaanite army broke up and the Israelites chased them as they fled in all directions. Indeed, the terse statement in verse 10 that Joshua captured Hatzor and struck its king with a sword, given the size and importance of that city in those days, is a strikingly emphatic understatement, as if this was no difficulty at all. The greatest city of Canaan was summarily rendered a ruin. The point was, the same point, or the point is that is made at the beginning of the chapter, is the same that was made at the end. In Numbers 13, we read of the report of the Hebrew spies, the 12 spies, after their return from, from a tour of the land of Canaan. It was the Anakim, or the Anakites, who had particularly unnerved them. They were stronger and they were taller than the Israelites. And in a day when combat was mostly hand-to-hand, that was significant. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Numbers 13.33. They had a fierce reputation as warriors. What is more, they lived in cities with towering walls. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 2, quotes a saying about the Anakim. Who can stand up against the Anakim? It's an adage, a rhetorical question. 
The obvious lesson of the account of the Battle of Merom, its aftermath, and the summary conclusion of the conquest of Canaan, the three parts of chapter 11, is that the forward movement of the kingdom of God is irresistible and that the best the world can muster in its own defense is going to be of no use to them if the Lord is in the battle. That being so, it's the calling of the Lord's people to be confident and assured, faithful, and so fit to be useful to the Lord in the onward march of his kingdom and the story of the world's salvation. As we have said now repeatedly, the history of Joshua provides a pattern for the history of the Christian church and for the history of the life of any individual Christian man or woman. The people of God and each of us obtain the promised land as Israel did, at least in principle, and according to the pattern that is revealed in the history of the conquest of Canaan. We are reminded of that once again at the end of the chapter in the narrator's remark about the land having rest from war. That term rest, the author of Hebrews takes up in his chapter 4 in his likening the story of the conquest of the promised land to the way of salvation experienced by every believer. We too, after all, have overwhelming enemies like the great horde assembled by Jamed, Jamed, king of Hatsur. Humanly speaking, throughout the ages, it has seemed over and over again to Christians simply impossible that their faith and their church will survive. So great is the opposition that is ranged against it. But what we learn in Joshua 11 is that appearances are deceiving and in nothing more so than in this. With God helping us, foot soldiers are better than tanks. Think of our present situation in the Western world. Secularism is triumphant in our culture. No public figure invokes the word of God or urges us as a people to seek his favor. All our social and political problems are discussed without reference to God or his word or his will. Generation after generation of American young people educated in an academy that is overtly hostile to the Christian faith either lose what faith they had or they privatize it in order to avoid embarrassment or still worse. Our popular culture, dominated by a media that has made an idolatry of the autonomous self, is toxic to the Christian faith. There is no fear of God before their eyes, and they're teaching everyone else to have no fear of him either. Abortion and pornography are now the sacraments of our popular culture. The number of committed Christians is comparatively smaller than once it was. Many pundits have already written the obituary of evangelical Christianity in the Western world. It has utterly lost its prestige. It is now commonly the object of derision in the public square, which it never would have been a generation ago. What chance has the individual believer, what chance has the Christian church against forces as powerful as those, as unrelenting as those? Who can stand against the Anakim? 
But it's important for us to know and to remember how repeatedly this has been the story of the people of God and the gospel in the world. It has faced overwhelming odds, and by the power of God, it has triumphed and continued to triumph and triumphs still. True enough, there have been setbacks, temporary reverses, failures, trials, and tribulations, all necessary for the spiritual discipline of God's people, for the judgment and punishment of the nations, and to fulfill other inscrutable purposes of the Almighty, but still the kingdom advances and the enemies of God are punished. It is the story of this world. An important part of my work is continually to center your lives in the larger narrative of world history and the history of the kingdom of God. You must never forget that your seemingly small and insignificant life is part of a much larger story. We know little or nothing of the thousands of soldiers who made up Joshua's army, who swung swords and who threw spears that day at Merah. But en masse, they routed the Canaanites, and in doing so, they changed the course of world history. Nothing is more certain than that the Lord will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that he has done so and will continue to do so, and that he will use his people to accomplish that feat. What happened at Merom has happened literally thousands upon thousands of times in events both, both large and small in the years that have passed since that day. Think for a moment. Israel entered history a single ancient Near Eastern family. In fact, a husband and a wife, Abraham and Sarah. He wasn't a king. He wasn't one of the world's great men. Indeed, the descendants of Abraham were eventually enslaved in Egypt for several centuries. But by the power of God, escaping their bondage there, they took possession of Canaan from a people far more numerous than they. It was an utterly remarkable development and one of the most unlikely things that ever happened in the history of the world. And who can deny that the conquest of Canaan and all that happened as a result of it in the centuries that were to follow changed the face of this earth. The survival of the Jews as a distinct people through the three millennia and more from that time to this is one of the most extraordinary facts of human history. Where are the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites today? Who, who does not have a Bible in his hand, has ever heard of those people? We've all heard of Jerusalem, but does anyone know where Hatzor used to be? And where is any of the other peoples of the ancient world? The Egyptians today are now a mixture of peoples who washed back and forth over the territory of ancient Egypt in the centuries since. You can still hear the Hebrew language spoken today, but the only place where you can hear even an echo of the ancient Egyptian language is in the worship service of the Coptic Christian Church. After exile and subjugation, after centuries of anti-Semitism and violent persecution, still 
the Jews, the direct descendants of the people who defeated the Canaanites at Merah, exist as a distinct people, and still, no matter their small numbers, they sit in the center of world politics. No matter what you think of the modern Jewish state or the remarkable circumstances that brought it into being in 1948, Paul Johnson says in modern times that Israel slipped into existence through a crack in the time continuum. It's passing extraordinary that the Jews today have their own state in the same territory that Joshua occupied in the 14th century B.C. Voltaire once asked, why should the world be made to rotate around the insignificant pimple of Jewry? But in asking the question, he was as much as acknowledging the remarkable and unique place the Jews have occupied and still occupy in the world today. Why indeed, except because God himself has a special interest in these people and has kept them alive on account of that interest. Frederick the Great is supposed to have once asked his court chaplain, Herr Professor, give me a proof of the Bible but briefly for I have little time. The chaplain replied, Majesty, the Jews. I don't mean to say that the Jews today believe as a people in the Lord as they did in the day of Joshua. Alas, they do not. But Paul makes a point of saying that the Lord has not forgotten them and that they will remain to the very end of human history precisely because God has plans for their ultimate salvation. When God intends for a people to be preserved, they're preserved. Do you realize how remarkable this is and what an obvious lesson it teaches? Kings and peoples throughout the ages have attempted again and again and again to exterminate the Jewish people. And still they are here. And of course the history has been similarly remarkable and similarly unique. In this same sense, since Christianity continued the history of Israel as a spiritual commonwealth and people after Pentecost. When Paul called congregations of Gentile Christians the spiritual Israel, the circumcision, the Israel of God, when he said to Gentile Christians concerning the generation of Israel that escaped bondage in Egypt that they were their ancestors or forefathers, he was identifying the enlarged church of Jews and Gentiles as the direct spiritual descendants of that nation of Israel that under Joshua took possession of the promised land. And the history of that Israel has repeated the pattern that we see in Joshua. The kingdom of God overcoming the most daunting opposition by the power of God. We can think of any number of illustrations of the victory of Merom in the history of the Christian church ever since. Think of the, the oppression and the persecution that the apostles and the fledgling church suffered in the first years after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost. It would have been the likely, the predictable outcome that the new movement came to nothing. They were few in number, they had no political influence or protection. They had no money. They were the object of bitter opposition by people in power. 
And they were saddled with a message that was ill-suited to the prejudices of their time. And yet, not only did their numbers grow remarkably, but the Lord raised up for them out of the community of their most implacable enemies, a champion, a man who was to become perhaps the greatest man in the history of the world, save one, who the day before his encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus could have or would ever have imagined that Saul of Tarsus would become himself a follower of Jesus Christ, much less that through his influence of all people, the true faith of the Jews would become the faith of the entire world. I remind you of this from time to time because it is something we must never forget that a small movement of a few hundred Jews, a despised people in that day, should in a century be commanding the attention of the entire Roman world. In another century should be dramatically reshaping Greco-Roman life and in another century should have taken possession of that world is, humanly speaking, one of, if not the most remarkable things that has ever happened in the history of mankind. Every now and then one reads a scholar who steps back, who sees this history, and wonders how in the world it ever happened. And through the ages it's been the same. In 1948 when the missionaries were ejected from China after the communist revolution, an event that the entire Western world of Christendom thought an unmitigated disaster, that Christianity was going to be stamped out in China. It was thought that in 1948 there were 750,000 Christians in China. In the generation and a half since, and in the teeth of ferocious opposition and persecution. That 750,000 has by the Chinese government's own estimate become 110 million. One-tenth of the population. And their number continues to grow as the rest of China's population now begins to decrease. What is that but Israel at the waters of Merom? Once again, after a century of missionary work in Africa, there were small Christian churches here and there but nothing to suggest the tremendous surge in the Christian population of Africa over the past generation. According to every estimate, African Christianity is growing at utterly unprecedented rates. According to one Muslim cleric, some six million Muslims convert to Christianity every year in Africa. That's Christian Africa's battle of merit. Do you know that it's suggested by the end of this century there will be more Pentecostals than there will be Chinese in the world? And we could go on and on. Whenever and wherever forces to conspire to oppose the progress of God's kingdom, to render the gospel of Jesus Christ a spent force in the world, to, as it were, drive the people out of the promised land... Remember Thomas Jefferson boast, Jefferson's boast that there would not be a young man living in the United States in his day who did not die a Unitarian. The Lord himself takes matters in hand. 
to prove that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And certainly not Thomas Jefferson. And certainly not the Unitarians. There are still a few here and there, mostly in New England. Three little old ladies in a great big church. But what Christians worry that they will win the day? What is true on the larger scale of lands and peoples, of the advancement of the kingdom of God throughout the world, no matter the opposition of the world and the devil, is also true of the life of the individual believer. Think about your own life. Perhaps you haven't looked at it carefully in this light. Every Christian, if only he or she would be honest, will think that his or her own salvation is the most remarkable victory that God has ever won. A victory gained against terrible odds. A victory only God could win. You too were facing enemies that, humanly speaking, were simply far beyond your power to resist. Think of your own black heart. You are all too familiar with it by now. How easily it runs to thoughts that are unworthy of God and how hard-pressed you are to keep it thinking thoughts that are worthy of him. Full of ingratitude and impurity, unkindness, selfishness. How boorish you can be on the inside. How stupid. Even knowing better hardly helps so much most of the time. Think of how much you have taken God's love for granted. How little it moves you as you know it ought to move you. Think of how little you have done with the gifts that God has lavished on you. Think of what your life ought to be in comparison with what it is. Loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Who are you kidding with that heart? Have you had that kind of love for God and your neighbor for ten minutes in your entire existence? I doubt it. Consider all the things that followers of Jesus Christ ought to do and ought to be. How often and to what extent are you such a person doing those things with the commitment and the zeal and the energy and the courage with which they ought to be done? The enemy is not only encamped around you. He has a powerful, sizable force encamped inside of you. Anakim indeed, who can stand against them? And yet day after day, your sins are swept away by the grace and forgiveness of God because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Again and again, the Holy Spirit returns to summon you to confess your faults, to face and to acknowledge the universe of your shortcomings, to renew your obedience Still, after all you haven't done and didn't become, you find yourself convinced of the truth of the Word of God, the beauty of the Gospel, the supremacy of the person of Jesus Christ, and the absolute goodness of that way of life to which you have been called. The ranks of the Canaanite chariot spread out before you, but you still plow ahead, and they at last not only don't do you any fatal harm, Last, they must turn and flee. A foot soldier frightening a tank. The story of the Christian life. There is a world of people out there who never confess their sins to God, never aspire to submit their lives to His commandments. 
Never think to judge their lives in terms of the service they have or have not rendered to his kingdom. But you do. And you still do. After all this while, after the worst the world, the flesh, and the devil have been able to do to you. You are Christ's. You'll never be anything but Christ's. His follower and his servant. Indeed, there is nothing in the world you desire more sitting here this morning than to be more completely his and to live more faithfully and usefully for his sake and in his name. You have served him. There are other people and other lives that he has blessed through you. And together with your own hope of eternal life, nothing gives you more satisfaction in your life than that. After all the great enemies of your soul have done, and they've done a lot, your life in Christ is untouched, safe, sound as it ever was. Triumph indeed. Every Christian at the waters of Merrill. And all of that is true no matter that so many in your culture today scorn your faith or find it silly or revolting or evil, you remain a confident Christian no matter the scorn of the elite in your land, no matter that television producers find your view of the world more than faintly ridiculous. They batter your faith from every side all day long and deep into the night and still you advance at Merah. The opposition is impressive but at the last it's all bluster. It can't stop you. It has not stopped you. It will not stop you. It'll kill itself before it kills you. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the message of Joshua for every Christian today. It's a message that ought to nerve and steal us in our overtly hostile environment. But it's also a message that should remind us how extraordinary a privilege it is to find ourselves Israelites when the Canaanites all around us have nothing with which to do battle against us but chariots in the hill country. This history is meant to put hair on our chests, stiffen our backs, put a spring in our step, to strengthen our resolve to fight the Lord's battles with courage and confidence in the Lord's way. Every Christian is, we read in the Word of God, is and will be more than a conqueror through him who loved us. We're going to carry the day, you and I, and the vast company of our brethren in the world. So let's act like it. And to the unbelieving world, let us say as kindly and compassionately and persuasively, but as firmly as we can, take a look around you. Survey the history of this world. You haven't a hope of prevailing. Look around you and see today. Be wise like the Gibeonites and join us. Amen.